So I'm in Chicago with my son on a quick dad-kid vacation. And earlier today, we walked past the Tribune Tower, longtime home to the Chicago Tribune. And the building is nothing short of breathtaking. Built in 1935, 36 floors, a neo-Gothic design, these funky buttresses surrounding the roof that reflect the light at night. And I love that building. I've always loved that building. Only the Tribune Tower stopped housing the Tribune in 2018. And now it's an apartment building. It's fancy and it's overpriced. It's a sort of place with obnoxious dogs and underpaid doormen. And seeing it as it is and remembering what it once was reminds me of what newspapers are and what newspapers once were. And it breaks my heart. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Carrie Blakinger, staff writer for The Marshall Project and author of the riveting new memoir, Corrections in Ink, Dispatches from an American Prison. This is episode number 268. Let's Sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Carrie. First of all, thank you for doing this once again. You actually appeared on this podcast in 2019, I believe. So it's been a few years, and you're back. And uh, a few years. It's been, it was pre-pandemic. It was like a different fucking world. That's a good point. You have a memoir out, Corrections in Ink. It's freaking great. And um, here's what I wanted to talk to you about at first. So I. I hate promoting a book. I hate promoting a book. It's a nightmare. It sucks. It's awful. I reached out to you the other day because I'm excited because I'm like, oh my God, Carrie, there's Carrie. And we've texted over the years since doing the podcast a couple of times. I'm like, there's Carrie. She's getting her fucking due. She's on real sports on HBO. That is a big, that's a big hit right there. I'm so, I'm generally happy and elated for you. I actually said to my wife, oh my God, that's Carrie. I know Carrie. This is great. This is great. Okay, great. Segment's great. I text you and I say, that was great. Congrats. And in the, the most book PR thing ever, ever of all time, they did not mention that you had a book coming out. Yes, that is correct. On this podcast, I've had people promoting books who have gone to bookstores that no longer exist. I've done book signings where three people came out. I feel like everyone has their stories. And now you have a really good one, which is they didn't mention the book. You know what? So, so there's a few things about that that are funny. Like, okay. so first of all, like they had said when, well, actually I should say how I ended up on real sports um, because after I was on your podcast before, then Katie Strang with the athletic, um, I think listened to the podcast and heard about me that way. And then did a long form story on me that ran in 2020. It was great. Um, and then someone from real sports read that. And that's how I actually ended up on Real Sports <laughs> because of you. But when when we started talking, when I started talking with the guy at Real Sports, you know, he, he said, I mean, it was it was not as book publicity at that point, obviously, because he just read about me elsewhere. Um, and, you know, and they said he said they weren't going to like show the book on the, on. They weren't going to agree to like show the cover or something. And I was like, OK, that, that's reasonable. You know, like it's not an ad. Uh, you know, I get it. Um but then when we ended up actually filming, he must have gotten some really good visuals of of me with the book because I ended up 
we go, went to Ithaca and I was with some of the people who are in the book. I was with the family that kept my dog when I was in prison and I was seeing them, I think for the first time since the pandemic, maybe, maybe the second time. It was the first time I was staying with them since the pandemic. And, you know, they're like family to me. We're very close. They hadn't seen the book. I hadn't, I get, I came with galleys to sign and give to them. And like, there was just this very emotional on camera moment that they got of me, like giving them this signed book and like, they start crying and um, you know, so there was actually good video of the book, but I understand that that was a little bit aside from what the gist of the actual episode was, but yeah, that was um, disappointing. (laughs) Wait. So, I mean, this is what this podcast is all about. Like in a lot of ways, like, um, this book, more than other memoirs, more than other autobiographies I've had on this podcast. I mean, this book is you freaking bleeding, like cutting veins and putting it on the page. It really is. And your life, which again, we went over in, in a previous episode, but your life is a is an amazing roller coaster of the highs of athletic success and figure skating, the lows of drug addiction, the highs of report. I mean, up and down and up and down. And I wonder promoting a book and trying to sell a book that you just fucking bled. Is it awful or is it wonderful? It's weird. So it's weird in that, like, I am a very intense driven person and doing all of this doesn't feel like work. So it feels like in some ways, like I, on the one hand, it's exhausting and you know, it's been emotionally draining, but it also feels like I've just been fucking around and doing nothing for weeks, yeah. you know, because like in in my head, work is when I'm when I'm writing and, um, you know, promoting is not that obviously. Um, and it's been it's been a different kind of, I think, emotionally draining than some book promotion would be. Um, I actually haven't watched the whole real sports thing yet because when when that landed, um, I was in Boston, which is where some of the worst shit in my book happens. That's where I was, you know, a homeless, drug addicted prostitute. And um, I was I was there because I was doing a book tour speaking event there. But I was walking around for the first time in 20 years, seeing these places like being like, oh, that's the place I got high for the first time. Oh, walking by. Oh, I remember getting raped in that alley, like things like that. Um, And I hadn't seen these places in 20 years. And there's things I didn't remember. They're like coming back to me as I'm passing these locations. And then I come back to my hotel and, you know, I see the real sports link is up and I start to watch it. And I get to the part where I'm talking about sex work. I was like, this is too much. I can't have walked around and seen all these places and then be watching myself talk about them to a national audience. Um, And, you know, I I found that there was just a lot of things like that, that were dark parts of my past that it, it was like a tour, a physical tour of just all the bad shit in my book. Um, But at the same time, I also got some amazing feedback from people in person. And there were some really amazing moments in this, um, in in the course of this, you know, book tour stuff. Like at my first book event in Houston, there was a prison dentist that came. And afterwards, when he gets to the questions, he was, he stood up and he was like, Hey, I'm, you know, a dentist. I worked in the Texas prison system. And I'm just like, Oh shit. Is this man about 
to yell at me <laughs> like and no, he he thanked me for my work and said that all the dentists look forward to my articles because they didn't like not being able to give people dental care either. And they appreciated having someone write about the lack of dental care and um, how people couldn't get dentures. And that was so cool to hear. And then there was another really cool moment at like the day of my, my book event in Boston, when I walked by the Harvard Coop, the you know main bookstore where people buy books for Harvard classes. And I, you know, I just decided to go in on a whim and see if the, this one cafe was there that used to have like, I don't know, good coffee or something. And on my way up to the whatever that's on like the third floor, I realized like, oh, they might have my book. And like I went and I looked and I mean, I started crying because like when I used to hang out at the Harvard Coop, it was to steal books to go return at another store and resell for CDs that you could then return to the tower records for $5, do this whole rigmarole to get like five bucks at a time to pay for heroin. And, you know, I was, like I said, homeless and doing sex work and addicted to heroin and stealing from fucking Harvard coop. And I went in and they had my book now. And, um, and I started crying. Like that was, that was a really amazing moment to see, you know, Ma'am, can you can you please stop crying on the on the books? We have to sell these. <laughs> right. It is interesting. Like when you do a book like this and then you promote it, it seems like you could do one of two things or maybe both. It could trigger a lot of really suppressed and harsh experiences you had in your life that maybe you don't want to relive again. It opens you, you up to questions from people that maybe you don't want to answer. Or then on the other hand, it seems like it could be this just giant breath of air where you and I wonder, is it both? Is it either? It's somewhere in between. I mean, because I write about prisons, I am revisiting these parts of my past a lot. Um, it is usually more in the context of me talking about prisons reporting. So, you know, I'm talking about experiences that resonate with my own, but are often not entirely or primarily my own. So, you know, it's a little more centered on me than is normal, but I'm pretty used to spending a decent amount of my time revisiting, um, you know, the shittiest parts of my past. Um, I'm not sure I would say it's like a, a weight off or anything because I mean, it's been, it's been a while, you know, I got out of prison like 10 years ago. So I've had a while to process some of these things. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I also know that, since I write about prisons for a living, it's not like I wrote this book and I can be like, okay, I'm going to put that part of my life on a shelf now and sort of not spend a lot of time revisiting it. Like, no, I, I kind of revisit it all the time. Even if it's not telling my own story, like I am going into prisons all the time. I'm going to death row tomorrow. You know, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the art of memoir and I was thinking, all right. So I recently signed a deal where I'm writing a memoir my, my first two and a half years as a journalist, right? And at the National Tennessee, and I was the biggest fuck up you could ever imagine, right? And there was this time, this really embarrassing time when I was like, I swear to God, this is going to sound way too vivid, but like I'm 22 years old and I'm by myself and I'm just like masturbating to Tanya Tucker photos. Because <laughs> Tanya Tucker, right? I know who Tanya Tucker is. That's amazing. Right, which yeah. is super weird in and of itself. And, yeah, I I have questions. Okay, <laughs> and actually, no, I don't have questions. Well, you don't want no questions. 
And um, <laughs> I honestly, I swear to God, like I'm not working on the book for a while, but I've been thinking like, do I write about that? Do I write about that? Do I write about that? And I'm reading your book, right? And there's a section you, you talk about where you did sex work and you wrote, I started turning tricks. It was quite a leap. I'd only had sex with a guy once at that point and only a few times with a woman. Both were still awkward and new, but that changed after some scruffy teenager at the pit introduced me to Mary Jane, a skinny white female pimp with a crack problem. She was just a few years older than me and we had an on-the-go interview strolling down the Cambridge sidewalk as she looked me over, asked what I would and wouldn't do and explained the rules of Boston's Chinatown circa 2002. In many nights I'd spend for years to come having sex in strange alleys and rusty cars, shitty motels across the East Coast. I would always count the stars through every trick. If I could not see the stars, I would count ceiling tiles or specks on the floor. If I could not do that, I would close my eyes and count twinkling points of light in my mind. And you write at length about being a sex worker. And as I was reading about you as a sex worker, I was thinking, Jerking off to Tanya Tucker, not that revealing. And I was wondering, like, but I really was wondering, like, you're putting it out there. I was a sex worker. I did this. Here it is for all of you to read and all of you to know. And if people who don't know me, you're now going to know this about me. People who do know me, you're going to know this about me. How do you do that without reservation, if that's even a thing? So I put some of that in there in part because I was like, there are some things that if you leave them out and then somehow it comes up later, like I write about it later, somebody calls me out on it, like whatever. It's a gotcha. And I was like, anything that is big enough to be like a gotcha, if someone judges it up later, is probably something that's big enough to be mentioned, you know, in in the first place. Um, but you know, I think also it helped that I've written a lot of essays before. So, you know, I have some sense of how to frame these things, how they resonate with like my typical readers. Um, I mean, I didn't go from nothing to memoir. Like I've had a lot of chances to know what the response and feedback on these things tends to be and um, what I can expect, what sort of shittiness I can handle and and you know, what things I need to be ready to get in a fucking fight. I mean, on Twitter over. Um, I, I mean, I did actually have like, and it's interesting that part of the book, um, I haven't really had a lot of like shitty comments on it or whatever, but I was on news nation and they, um, their Chiron was something like, um, I don't know, you know, skating champ, comma, addict, comma, prostitute, comma Ivy League or something like that. Like they didn't even say former, just said prostitute. That's the worst that's happened as a result of me putting in the sex work stuff. But even so, I mean, I did hold back things. Like there are not graphic descriptions of, of any of this. Like there's sentences that say like that, you know, men did X, Y, and Z, but it, it, it's a laundry list. I, I didn't like, you know, I, I'm describing the stars. I'm not describing the penetration. You know what I mean? Right. So like it's 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 there, but it's not. I think um, I think someone who I who who has a really great memoir that skirts around some of these issues in a very different way um, was Lauren Huff. Have you had her on here? I no. love her. No. Um, and so she had a memoir and she had grown up in a, a cult and then, you know, was in the military and, you know, 
got kicked out because because of don't ask, don't tell. And it's it's a it's a really engaging memoir. I actually listened to it on Audible while I was getting this tattoo, which I know the listeners can't see, but it's a, a very good big, tattoo. a very big <laughs> tattoo on your left arm. Correct. How many hours, yeah. how many hours was that? Um, that was like four or five cities and they were like three or four hours each. It was pretty long. I actually, this is my joke has been that my book sounds like a tattoo memoir. And I was like, I'm just going to spend the money on tattoos until the title fits. So I did, I got that one. And then I also got like a big one on my leg. So yeah, that's, that's my, when, when people ask what my tattoos are, I just say that's book money. Like I could hear my mom listening to this podcast and saying, why would you talk about Tanya Tucker on a right? Whatever. Right. Why would you bring that up? I'm actually being serious. Though. My mom has said this to me a million times. Why would you bring blank up? Why would you write about blank? Why would you do blank? Um, do you never have that concern? Why would you write about blank? I think in the context of a memoir, it's um, it was a little clearer that those things were germane. Like if it's an individual essay, um, that's not sort of a my past of doing sex work, for instance, um, or, you know, the chapter about like, a, a, you know, pretty graphic chapter about eating disorders like that's not typically germane to what I'm writing about. So I probably wouldn't write essays about those things. I, I don't think I ever have. Um, but in the context of of a memoir where I'm trying to. Help people understand how I got from, you know, figure skater to prison um, and, you know, to show people how that happens, like then those are relevant steps. Right. I mean, I did have to, you know, sort of ask the question of everything that I'm putting in, like, why am I putting in this level of detail? What things am I going to choose to omit? Um, you know, and of the things that I leave in, like, I, I want to make sure I'm detailed, but not gratuitous. Your author's note actually really caught my eye. You wrote, um, this book is a memoir drawn from my experience, recollections, letters, and voluminous journal entries, some of which have been condensed and edited for clarity. The events here are described as I remember them, though I have a fa I fact checked my memory where possible through government records and personal interviews. Some conversations are included verbatim based on notes and journals, but others I reconstructed to the best of my ability. I've changed names and some identifying details of people as I met behind bars, including uh, all staff and most prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. And I think um, one of the mistakes people make with memoirs that I don't think you did at all, obviously, is, well, it's a memoir. I don't really have to report. I'm just going to write just my life. So I'm just going to I'm just going to write it. You know, like this will take me five weeks because all I got to do is write. How much reporting went into writing your own memoir? I basically decided I was going to write it first and then deal with the reporting. I was told by my editor and pretty much anyone that I was being way extra about fact checking my life. Um, but, you know, as a reporter, like that's my instinct to, you know, fact check and get comment from everyone. Right. So I decided, though, that I also knew there was people in here that we were going to have differences of opinion as to reality. You know, and I was like, what do I do if I fact check with someone and 
I say, you know, I, I remember very clearly this way. And it's not like there's some room for error, like that motherfucker's gaslighting, you know. Yeah. And then I was sort of I had to figure out how I would frame that if that happened. It actually didn't happen or at least not in any sort of significant way. Like there was very minor points that some people remembered a little differently. But, um, you know, I decided to avoid that, to avoid having my memory sort of shaped by what other people remembered or chose to claim they remembered, I would just write it first and then deal with fact checking. Um, and I did track down a lot of the people that are in here and, you know, just sort of chat with them about what they remembered and run by them what I had written. Uh, not not verbatim, but you know, in broad strokes, like here's sort of how I remember it. How here's how this appears. Here's the framing. Um, and I walked everyone through it that I was able to get a hold of. What I learned from that was actually that despite doing a shit ton of drugs, like my memory was a lot better than I would have thought. <laughs> but, you know, there were some places where somebody would tell me more that I didn't remember. Like, I think there's one part where I mentioned that I, I describe a scene and then I say, but this is only as it was told to me. Because I don't, you know, I don't actually remember. Um, and I think um, in Educated, Tara Westover uh, you did, clearly did something along those lines because there's moments where she says, like, what somebody told her later when she interviewed them about it after the fact. And I had read that, I think, as I was doing, I was reading memoirs as I was, you know, writing mine some. Um, well, not as I was writing, as I was getting to the fact checking. I tried not to read any books while I was writing. Wait, actually, I was going to ask you about that. I always hate reading stuff about a subject or related to a subject or style I'm writing about while I'm writing something. I do not like doing that. I feel like it has a very negative impact on what I'm doing and I end up kind of copycatting or stealing ideas or whatever, blah, blah. So you you were not reading memoirs as you were writing as you were writing a memoir. I didn't read any books, I don't think, during the bulk of the writing. Like there were books I had to read for work. Um that were, you know, nonfiction criminal justice things. But I didn't I, I feel like when I'm reading something, as long as a book, you're getting enough immersed in the voice that it like, I don't know, it sort of infiltrates your thinking. And what I was afraid of was that I would end up having one chapter that sounds slightly different because it's influenced by the voice of the book I'm reading then. Oh. And then I would have another chapter like it would be influenced by a different voice and I was afraid it would be uneven that way. So I didn't read any books when I was doing the bulk of that writing other than, you know, like I said, what I needed to for work. I mean, I still read lots of shorter stuff. I was, you know, reading tons of magazine articles. I, I really caught up on all the magazine reading I wanted to do during the course of this. Um, but I don't I don't worry about those sort of um, influencing you know, having sort of any effect on my voice because, you know, they're much shorter than a book. You're not being immersed in it for days or weeks. Is it hard getting edited when something is this personal to you? Is it hard getting edits back in an editor saying, well, I think we need to cut this or do this. And you're like, well, this is my fucking life. No, I don't think we had that issue at all. I mean, book, you know, this like book editors don't edit the way that like journalism editors do. Right. Um so, I mean, I was used to editors that would really fuck with your copy in, in some of my, you know, in some of my jobs in journalism. And I've also had editors that 
would not even read the things before they would hit publish. So, I mean, I've had a whole gamut of journalism editors, but my book editor was great. I loved her. Um, I would send her every chapter when it was done and she would have lots of comments. And I mean, if I pushed back, she, you know, I, if I can usually explain why I wanted something one way and if she would say, okay, well, here's my concern, but there weren't any big things that like, we need to cut this, or this is like a structural issue that needs to be changed. It was a lot of sort of, um, you know, I'd like more color here. Could you flesh out this scene a little more? Um, you know, maybe the, the reader has forgotten who this character is by now. Could you re-explain um, that? It was, it was more like um, sort of continuity and line editing type stuff. Right. Uh, there was no sort of like arguments over like, do we keep this or not? Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's been watching a documentary on Warren Jeffs and now wants to start a cult. I've spoken with God Almighty. And in 23 days, 6 hours and 14 minutes, and 2 seconds to be exact, the world will be destroyed by a giant meatball. Follow me to Toledo if you want to live. Uh, can, can you add one final touch, please? Oh, right. And before you follow me to go to Toledo, go to royalretros.com and spend all your money on the best throwback hats, shirts, and jerseys. Then, and only then, will you be safe from the meatballs in Toledo. Wow, you're just like Warren Jeffs. Thanks. My 36 wives would agree. So what have you learned? I, I've had this discussion with a million people. It's like the unanswerable question I need to ask. What have you learned about selling books? Have you figured out what works and what doesn't work? Um, obviously, no, I haven't Damn. figured that out. I mean, there wouldn't be an entire fucking industry if, about it if I could just figure it out with one book. <laughs> um. I mean, you know, sure. Are there things that I would do differently? Yeah, I I tried to sort of stay in my own lane. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I should have not stayed in my own lane when it came to publicity. Like, I, sure, I, I made a list of everyone I know in journalism that, you know, that might be interested, that I might have connections to, that might review it or write about it or whatever. And I reached out to a lot of them, but I think I should have, you know, probably more aggressively done some of that. But I mean, I, I don't know, like I've had a million thoughts about things I could have, you know, should have done differently and, um, you know, things I, I should or shouldn't have, you know, put in the book as much or like, well, not, not that there's anything I shouldn't have put in as much. I've been like, geez, there's these other things. Maybe I should have, maybe it should be 50 pages longer. Like, I don't know. I mean, I've had a lot of questions, but I have no fucking idea how to sell a book. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I do have one thing. I wish I'd started TikToking sooner. I started TikToking like two months before the book came out. And now I have like 36,000 followers on TikTok. And I, I wish if I had started that sooner, like you gain followers so much more quickly on TikTok. Um, and, and I wish I had started that sooner. All right, wait, we need to go here. Okay. All right. First of all, I'm allowed to ask you this because I told you all about Tanya Tucker. How old are you? 38 just turned 38. Are you too old to TikTok? Um, I suspect I would do better if I were younger, but like there's definitely there's definite actually, you know, what would make a bigger difference in being younger is if I had long hair, like femme looking femme looking white girls 
do better on that app. They do. I mean, that's not like me just saying it. Like there's, there's plenty of things written about that. I'm all here for this. This is a conversation I've had. This is a 267th episode of this podcast. I've had almost every conversation you could have. I've never talked about authors using TikTok. Tell me, I have a book coming out in October. I'm, I'm a 50 year old guy. Carrie, well, I do think there's still there. There are very there's a lot of different corners of TikTok. So like, yeah, there are definitely spaces where the demographics are different. Like I do mostly I do prison TikTok. I'm not actually doing like book talk. Book talk is people reviewing books. I don't understand how as an author you would get into that. This is like, you know, Instagram like, you know, there's that whole corner of Instagram that is book reviews. Yep. This is like that, but TikTok and um, people have a lot more followers there. But I was I did a story for NBC about prison TikTok, which is there's two kinds. There's the people still in prison with their illegal contraband phones TikToking. Um, but I was writing about people who get out of prison and then start TikToking about prison and they were answering some pretty basic questions. Like one girl I interviewed did um, a one minute video on, you know, periods in prison. And it got like 11 million views. And, you know, I talked to I mean, I talked to a bunch of the different prison TikTokers and then for the story decided I would post a few things. And, you know, I did. I don't know. The first five or so didn't really do that well. And then. I did one on the racist history of prison. No, I did something on the, the, yeah, the racist history of prison labor in Texas. And that one kind of took off. And then after that, I started doing more things about me. And it's been, it's been so interesting, the things that people ask, because a lot of this is driven by like, I post a thing, a, a minute video about prison soap. That's one I did. They, they got like two and a half million views. It did. That one went pretty well. And then people ask questions. They respond with questions. And then I do a video response to their questions. And that's sort of how it keeps going. But it's interesting how basic some of the questions are. Like, I don't know, what do you sleep in at night in prison? Like, what do you do for laundry? Like very basic questions that actually get a lot of engagement and people are really interested in. And then, you know, sometimes I'll do things about myself. I had one about, um, you know, how I got married and, and divorced in jail. Um, and, you know, I did one about sort of a very bridge version of my life story. I did one that was what happened to my dog when I was in prison. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, occasionally I do more reporting-ish ones where I'll, you know, talk about, you know, racist history of prison labor or most racist prison names in Texas. Or I did one on the Anti-Effective uh, Terrorism and Death Penalty Act, EDPA, which is very niche, but I did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, for me, the realm of TikTok has been prison TikTok. Like for you, I assume it would be, I don't know, some sports shit or, um, could be Tanya Tucker. Could be Tanya Tucker. Um, or, um, I don't know. I mean, whatever, I mean, you could start aggressively TikToking about, you know, whatever the subject of your next book is. I mean, if you're going to do a memoir, you could be, you know, that could be something that 
would fit into sports talk. I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, and then, I mean, there's also like a much smaller, like news TikTok. I, I haven't seen that much news TikTok, although that is a thing. And I, I have some crossover with, um, lesbian TikTok that most of my followers are women and based on their screen names, a lot of them are gay, which I, I feel like I, I, I did something right. Yeah. So do you, are you more on TikTok than you are on Twitter or Instagram or whatever? I am mostly on Twitter and TikTok. I really never have caught on on Instagram, Um, but I do them in very different ways. Like I use Twitter as like for reporting. Like I would do a tweet thread on, you know, whatever new horrible thing I've discovered in prisons. Um, I, I would do like sort of, factual investigative tweet threads that sometimes are around stories, but sometimes just reporting that is, you know, a thread that might be a story at a local publication, but is not a story necessarily at a national publication. Um, And on TikTok, I'm, I'm mostly just, you know, talking about me and my story. Like that's what resonates with people there. Um, So it's very different audiences and things that they're looking for. I want to do my two second rant on book PR. Okay. Is that all right? Yes, of course. All right, here I go. Cause I know it's got to be shared to at least some degree. You and I, they pay us to write a book, right? We write the book. Then they have to spend a lot of money to print the book. They spend a lot of money. They print the book. They hire a designer to design the book, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Everything goes into it. Then they give you a publicist and the publicist is usually 23 years old. And the publicist will say, we have these big plans and the same, it's the same plans. They just told the other author they had their zoom call with 10 minutes ago. It's we're going to do a nationwide blitz of TV and radio. And it'll be like, they'll have this list of all the stuff they're going to do. And it literally includes the words like nationwide blitz online marketing campaign, blah, blah, blah. And basically what it fucking comes down to truly for you and for me is who do you know? Can you reach out to them? And good luck with that. And that is the maddening nature of book PR is they spend a shitload of money on books and very little money on actually promoting the books. And it kind of pisses me off. Yeah. You know, I feel like, um, and this is what I said about, like, I wish I didn't stay in my lane, but it seemed like everyone seemed, you know, competent and motivated. So I, I, I thought I, I would stay in my lane. Um, and then I realized that, you know, part of it is also that I can tell them who I know and make them a nice list, but like, I'm the one that has the connections, you know? So like, it's really, to some extent, it feels like it's not work. The Some of it is just not work you can outsource. Oh. And I, I think maybe we should have had like, you know, me and the publicist maybe should have had that conversation, you know, further in advance. It's a crazy thing because like, all right, so you're like, well, I know this person at the New York Times and they say, oh, we'll reach out to them. But that makes no right. sense whatsoever because right. Becky from HarperCollins or, who, you know, you know, Toucher or whoever reaching out to them is just another publicist reaching out to them. You actually need to be the one who reaches out to them. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting is that um, I, I know what I will delete in a PR pitch. And um, I think that PR folks don't don't know that. Yeah. You know, like I, I usually if there's an all cap subject line. I'm not usually reading that. No, definitely not. 
And this is why, Carrie, I'm having you on my podcast. It's actually to ask if you want to join up forces and we could start our own book marketing firm. What do you think? <laughs> you, you in? <laughs> I can just, there's a brick wall behind me. I can just bang my head against that. Like, thank Fair you. Point. Same result. God damn it. Let me ask you a final thing. When I had you on last time, you were writing for the Houston Chronicle. You have since moved to the Marshall Project. For those who don't know, nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization, I'm reading this, it seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. And you've written, you know, multiple, multiple pieces over the years about just, again, prisons and what goes on in prisons and the injustice of prisons and um, on and on and on. And your work is great. I'm fascinated by this. I've been watching the January 6th hearings, right? And it just depresses the fuck out of me, right? And I read about climate change and it depresses the fuck out of me. And I read, I go to the Marshall Project and I read something you write and sometimes it'll depress the fuck out of me where I'll be like, it's just preposterous. How do you cover such a sort of dark, often corrupt world and not bang your head into the wall behind you? I mean, part of it is because of you know, the people I'm covering and I know how much it means to them to have someone paying attention and covering them, but also to have someone who's been where they are paying attention and covering them. And, um, you know, a lot of stories I write aren't going to have impact. Obviously some do, and that's amazing. And I, you know, have some of those in the book, but, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've told this story before when, when people ask about this sort of thing, but, you know, there's um, two guys on death row that I've been, that I've been, you know, talking to for a while for a story. And um, one of them, they, they were best friends over the course of like 20 years on the row. And one of them was executed. And, you know, I still continue talking to the other one and, I asked him at one point, what was the hardest thing about when, you know, what did he do the day that his best friend was executed? And he was like, no, that that's not the question. Like the, the day that he was executed was not the hardest part. It's the days leading up to it. When you know that your best friend is going to die on this specific date and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And he said, you know, despite that, he did what he could. Like he tried to um, do any interviews with anyone who who would talk to him about, you know, why this guy deserved clemency. And he, you know, signed an affidavit for the clemency petition. And he said that all he wanted was for people to know that this, you know, that this guy's life mattered, to know his story, to know who he was. And um, and I was like, ah, like that, I can do that. Like as a reporter, that's the that's the thing at the bare minimum. That's the thing I can bring to the table is amplifying these voices and telling their stories. And even though a lot of the work I do is not going to you know have impact or change the system, some of it does. And the rest of it, you know, is at least leaving a, a trace, leaving a record of, you know, the people that are impacted by this in their lives. That's a fucking great answer. Let me ask you a final, final question. Your book becomes enormous. Okay. And then it becomes a movie and it becomes a TV show and you're a star and they bring back the TV show skating with the stars. 
<laughs> could you? I will not be on. Could that you show. hang? Could you hang and do skating with the stars? I I would not. <laughs> I will not do skating with the stars. Um, my former pair partner um, has been trying to to get me on the ice again. He he was like, "If you need a pair of skates," and I was like, "No, I don't. I'm good. I'm good." <laughs> well, Carrie, seriously, you're one of the few people I've brought back on this podcast. I true story. This I never told you, or maybe I did. When I had you on initially, and I asked you to be on the first podcast, someone said to me, "There's this writer in Texas, and she's covering prison really well." I knew nothing about your background until 10 minutes before when I was researching you, nothing. I just thought you were a prison writer and your story is just insane and great. And the book is great. And you are such a freaking good writer and it warms my heart to see your career where it is. So I really appreciate you doing this. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. I want to thank today's guest, Carrie Blakinger, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Carrie on Twitter and TikTok at K-E-R-I-B-L-A and read her work at themarshallproject.org. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.